lovely war. It seems barely comprehensible. As LibriVox is a global project which is a shining example of cooperation between peoples, we decided to mark the centenary of that dreadful day when diplomacy could no longer prevent global conflict, resulting in a war that was to destroy millions of lives in many, many nations of the world. So we have produced collections in prose and poetry to mark the centenary of the beginning of the First World War, the Great War, as it became known, on the 28th of July, 1914, when Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. In the next few days, Germany declared war on Russia, and then on France, and then on the 4th of August, Britain declared war on Germany. The United States formally entered the war in April 1917, although, of course, for a long time before that, it had provided substantial loans and supplies to the Allies based on the Triple Entente of the United Kingdom, France and the Russian Empire. In Britain, as soon as war was declared, many men went straight off to the army recruiting offices in a state of high optimism that the war would be over by Christmas. They didn't want to miss it. H.G. Wells wrote an essay entitled The War That Will End War. But over the next year or two, as the war became attritional, with so many thousands dying for a few yards of mud, attitudes were starting to change, and our two centenary collections demonstrate a wide variety of attitudes to the war. The collections contain nearly 120 items, about half poetry, half prose. The prose collection contains an astonishing variety of pieces, letters written home from the front, some describing the Christmas Day truce of 1914, items written by famous authors at the secret behest of the British War Propaganda Bureau, some of them the most blatant pieces of propaganda, historical accounts, eyewitness accounts by journalists, and the experiences of women engaged in a wide range of war work, including nursing, of course. There are also items from readers of nations that remained neutral, but were nonetheless severely affected by the war. These non-fiction pieces are interspersed with a few pieces of fiction, for a little light relief. One of these is a spy or detective story by Sapper, redolent of the atmosphere of the trenches, as MacNeil himself served on the front line in the Royal Engineers. Here is an excerpt read by the inimitable Andy Minter. Something loomed up and bumped into him, only to recoil with a muttered oath, and even as he realised it was a German, he heard his sergeant's low voice from a few feet away. Where are you, sir? Where are you? The next moment he was back at his side. Go back your own way, he whispered. We've bumped a big patrol. Don't fire. And as he spoke, with a slight hiss, a flare shot up into the night. Now, had it not been for that one untimely flare, 
this story would never have been written. Indecent curiosity in other wanderers' doings in no man's land is an unprofitable amusement, while the sound of strafing, to say nothing of revolver shots, is calculated to produce a tornado of fire from all directions, administered impartially by friend and foe alike. Wherefore it is more than likely that, but for the sudden ghostly light, both the Englishmen would have got away. As it was, John Brinton, M.C., lieutenant in His Majesty's Regiment of the Royal Loamshires, found himself crouching in a slight dip in the ground, and contemplating, from a range of four feet, no fewer than six Huns similarly engaged. And I'm sure you'll want to hear the rest of that story. A number of readers, having started to delve into the material available, found it so interesting that they have also recorded whole books on aspects of the war. I'll make a list of these and put it on the blog page and in the wiki. Here is Marianne to tell you about her prose recordings. After listening to several BBC retrospectives on the World War, I started thinking about what the world was like for women a hundred years ago. At that time, most women in Europe and the U.S. did not have the right to vote and couldn't have pursued a professional career, as I have done. So among all the interesting material on the Great War, I wanted to spend a little time looking at the issues women faced and listening to their voices. It started in the home with food conservation. I can just imagine a woman in a city Sunday school class or a rural homemakers extension group like my mom belonged to for many years when I was growing up, going through the U.S. Food Administration's 10 lessons on food conservation to learn how they could do their bit for the Allies by gladly accepting rationing and consuming less food at home so there would be more for the troops. There's also an interesting piece on the added challenge that African-American women in the U.S. faced to do their part because of the racism and segregation they experienced at the hands of white women. I also picked two pieces to read about women who served behind the lines in field hospitals and the ambulance corps, although hearing their experiences, to say that they were behind the lines was really a misnomer, because they were shelled and saw a great deal of carnage firsthand. And then to finish the spectrum, I read Flora Sand's memoir titled An English Woman Sergeant in the Serbian Army. Flora Sands put herself right in the front of the battle, first with the field ambulance unit. Later on, during the retreat of the Serbian army across Albania, she enlisted and took on a combat role for a short time. She is unreserved in her love and admiration of all things Serbian, and she seems to have gotten pretty good treatment for a private. Being an English woman definitely helped out on that point. But she did pass up several opportunities to return to safety. She did not shy away from danger or suffering, and her story gives a sense of the chaos of war experienced by those in the middle of the fight. Thank you, Marianne. And here's Julia, J.N. on the forums, to tell us about a German recording she's made. I recently recorded Menschen im Krieg, which translates to Man in War, by Andreas Latzko. There is also an English public domain translation available on Gutenberg, if you'd like to read it. During the First World War, Andreas Latzko fought in the Austria-Hungarian army, but was sent home after becoming shell-shocked due to a particularly heavy artillery attack at the Isonzo River. 
During his recuperation period, he wrote the six novellas, or short stories, in this book, about the war. He depicts vividly what happens to people when they are assailed by war. He writes about fear and anger, about pain and guilt, about drama and hopelessness, and about being human during inhumane times. With every sentence I had the feeling I understood war a tiny bit more, because if you haven't been there, I don't think you can ever really understand it. Andreas Latzko condemns the war, but never the soldiers. I really appreciated this. I am against war, absolutely, but I cannot think badly of people who are willing to risk their lives, who are willing to die to protect someone else, no matter why they do it. And I salute every single one of them. Thank you, Julia, for a most thoughtful contribution. Sebastian chose a more political piece to read. Let him explain. Hi, my name is Sebastian Stevenson, and I did a reading for the World War I Centenary Collection for LibriVox. The reading is of Neutral Nations and the War by James Bryce. The reason um, I chose it was because, in case you haven't noticed, it's... Well, at least the title says it's about neutral, neutral nations and the war and their relationship to it. And that intrigued me because, or at least I thought there might be an interesting angle being, if in case you haven't already found out that I'm Irish. Um, and simplistically speaking, we have not declared war to another country. I mean, sure, there are many points and facts you could point to saying we're not completely neutral. But simply speaking, uh, we haven't. Uh, we've been a neutral country. And... I found it uh, from the suggested reading section on the thread for this project and um, looking back at the description, um, it actually says short-ish article written in 1914 and politically very interesting. Um, so I think I might have chosen it on the short-ish article because I'd only done kind of one or two poems and a, a minor role in a play for LibriVox before. The essay is, a second half of the sentence says it is politically very interesting. Uh, the essay kind of reinforces a lot of things that we think are self-evident now, that war is not a good thing, that it isn't the kind of progressive thing or the, the, the thing that pushes forward progress as such, which is what the essay essentially tries to tear down, that the smaller nations are of kind of little or no value to humanity. Um, and it, it also that the idea that war is a good and just thing um, and the arg and this article basically tears that uh, argument apart and basically says, no, it's not wrong. And what's fascinating is that this kind of line of thinking that is kind of how people, you know, would think is, is right almost uh, had to be kind of defend itself and had to be distributed in a sort of essay form, um, which is kind of interesting, I thought. Um, I think you should check it out anyway. <laughs> I thought it was interesting and I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, my name is Sebastian Stevenson and the reading I'm talking about is Neutral Nations and the War by James Bryce. Check it out. Thank you very much. And I can vouch for that. It is an extremely interesting article. Mary in Arkansas chose to read part of a book by an American journalist. Take it away, Mary. I wanted to record something from an American point of view about the early days of World War I. I found the perfect book in Irvin S. Cobb's Paths of Glory, Impressions of War Written at or Near the Front. In 1893, at the age of 17, Cobb began writing for the Paducah, Kentucky Daily News. 
His writing talent rapidly advanced his career as a journalist. In 1914, Cobb was in Europe, working for the Saturday Evening Post, when he was assigned to cover the First World War. Because Cobb was in France and Belgium during this time, he had the unique perspective of reporting the war as a neutral accompanied by the German military. I recorded the first chapter of the book, which introduces the reader to Cobb's observations of the uncertainty, boredom, horror, madness, compassion, humor, and the many other experiences of war. I also wanted to record a chapter unique to this particular war, and chose viewing a battle from a balloon. I found it especially interesting that this chapter combined basic elements with technology, such as the use of manpower and horsepower, field telephones, the observation balloon, and the airplane. Cobb's exciting descriptions in this chapter and his observations about the war made paths of glory well worth reading for this project. Thank you, Mary. Maria also chose an item by a war reporter and many other interesting pieces besides. I've been interested in the experiences of non-combatant reporters and journalists covering the war. Two of the items I read for this project had to do with newspaper reporters. Floyd Gibbons was a Chicago Tribune reporter who was covering the Battle of Belleau Wood when he got shot in the face and lost his left eye journalists in all wars have put themselves in harm's way. Reporters were in the position of being shot at, but they didn't shoot back, at least not with bullets. There was one line in his account that summed up for me what it means to be a reporter in a war zone. He said, everyone in our party carried a revolver ready in his hand with the exception of myself. Correspondents, you'll remember, are non-combatants and must be unarmed. But I carried a notebook, and it was loaded. That summed it up. That was his weapon, his notebook and pen. The other newspaper-related item I read for this project was a collection of excerpts from the first issue of Stars and Stripes, the American Army newspaper. It was not a commercial or professional newspaper. It was by and for the soldiers, printed on borrowed printing presses, delivered to soldiers all across the front, by couriers on motorcycle or in borrowed automobiles, and it gave me more of a real impression of what was on the minds of the soldiers, what kinds of things they talked about, what they were curious about or interested in, what the soldiers wanted to read. When are we going to get leave, and how do we go about getting it? What's this I hear about a dentist coming around to the front lines? Why does the censor keep opening up my mail? Tell me I wasn't seeing things when I saw a couple of women drivers pushing a truck out of a ditch. I felt that I got more of a sense of what the life of the soldiers was like from reading their own newspaper. There was one item in here that I did a little double-take at, and that was the classified ad reminding the soldiers to take out insurance. I hadn't thought of that, Maria. It seems that from 1917 the U.S. government itself issued war-risk insurance. One of the things Maria mentions was what soldiers liked to read. Hermann contributed a German piece, which at first sight has little to do with the First World War. But here is Hermann to explain why it was a very suitable addition to the collection. It may seem odd to include a story about a war which took place in 1663 
in this World War I project. But there is at least one good reason to do this. Rilke wrote his cornet in 1899 and, if the first version had no success, they reworked the second version, edited in 1912, was a true bestseller. The good reason to have it in the World War I collection is that this little book was the book German soldiers took with them when leaving home to go to the front. Now we can wonder about this because Rilke was not what we call a militarist and the text is not really glorifying war. On the contrary. So Christoph, who is the standard bearer of the army, jumps in the middle of his enemies where he waits passively to be killed. A major defeat. Not at all an example for the soldiers who attacked other countries and one might think that those German soldiers did not really go to the war joyfully and maybe they find some soothing words in this book. When Hermann told me this it set me thinking about whether British soldiers enjoyed reading at the front too. I couldn't imagine them packing a Dickens or a copy of the works of Shakespeare. In fact, I rather doubted whether they read anything at all, but how wrong I was. I later discovered a book called Books in the War, The Romance of Library War Service, and read a chapter for the collection which described the volunteer British War Library, which supplied reading material of all sorts, initially to the wounded in hospitals, and soon also to men on active service, both in ships and at the front, and to medical staff and coast guards. The appreciation was palpable. Here's a little bit. From the Edith Cavill Home of Rest for Nurses came an appreciative letter. It was a great delight unpacking the books, for each one seemed just exactly the right thing, and yet there was such variety that one wondered how it could all have been contrived. The novels, stories, poems, pictures... The thoroughly modern and present-day touch combined with old-fashioned charm, it was all delightful. I chose a number of items to read for these collections, ranging from an account of the first bombing raids by aeroplane on the British mainland, just a few miles from where I live, to the effect the First World War had on modern art. I think what came home to me during the weeks that I've been looking through countless books, documents, letters, is that simply no area of life seemed to be left untouched by that unimaginably huge conflict, the so-called war to end wars. Nothing was ever the same again. Millions of children were left fatherless, Lynn found and recorded a piece called The Children of Our Dead by a chaplain with the British Expeditionary Forces in France. As Lynn tells us, he did not write of military strategy and very little of the gruesomeness of war, but took pains to record the small things we can all relate to. Crisp white sheets, a child pulling on her father's sleeve. In this piece he reflects on the debt owed by a nation to the children destined to grow up fatherless and those children who would never be born because of war. 
While I was looking at its glorious rose windows, which were casting their rich colours on the pillars, this is Amiens Cathedral, a father and his two children came in. The man and son dipped their fingers in the shell of holy water, crossed their foreheads and breasts with the water, and were passing on. But the little girl, who was too short to reach the shell, took hold of her father's arm and pulled him back. She, too, wished to dip her fingers in holy water and make the sign of the cross over her mind and heart. The father yielded to her importunity and touched her hand with his wet fingers. She made the sacred sign and was satisfied. The father and son had remembered their own needs but forgotten the child's. After all the tragic happenings on the Somme, why should this little incident linger in my memory like a primrose in a crater? Did it not linger because of the tragedy of the preceding weeks? I had been living weeks together without seeing a child, and after the slaughter of youth which I had witnessed, the sight of a child in a cathedral was inexpressibly beautiful. The father's neglect of its finer needs gave me pain. We have lost so many young men that every child and youth left to us ought to be cared for as the apple of our eye. We have lost more than our young men. We have lost those who would have been their children. The little ones who might have been have gone to their graves with their fathers. War was, and of course still is, a catalyst for enormous advances in trauma treatment and other areas of medicine. Marianne found and recorded early care of gunshot wounds of the jaws and surrounding soft parts, which demonstrates changing attitudes in medicine. Of not uncommon occurrence in the present war are those distressing wounds of the face and jaw bones, which have attracted particular attention not only on account of the disfigurement which they cause, but even more so from the difficulty that was at first encountered in dealing with them. This difficulty is the logical outcome of an attitude that regarded dentistry and surgery as two distinct and separate professions. As long as this theory was allowed to dominate practice, a man who had an extensive injury of the face and jaw bones had about as much chance for an ideal result as had the man with an open fracture of a limb in the days when the physician and the bone-setter could find no common ground on which to meet. Sue Anderson, Mary Ann and Maria Casper all read harrowing accounts of the experience of British nurses, often without sufficient supplies and drugs to relieve the suffering of the men in their care. Their dining room was but the shed where the stretchers were piled up, many of them brown and discolored by blood, and bundles of fusty army blankets, used as coverings for the wounded, reached almost to the ceiling. They were, like the stretchers in some cases, always sticky to the touch. For the thousand wounded likely to come through daily, there are six fully trained nurses and myself, besides the male staff of RAMC doctors and orderlies, and two or three Red Cross surgeons and lady doctors. Ten beds and a number of sacks of straw form the main equipment. Planks supported by two packing cases are the dressing table. At one end, men are engaged in putting in three extemporary baths, others whitewashing the walls. The logistics of war are a study all of their own. As Kinross writes in Feeding an Army, to the soldier, however, one of the foremost questions of a campaign 
resolves itself into those two prosaic words, transport and supply. Without a satisfactory solution of this dual problem, your immense modern army might just as well have stayed at home. In many areas of technology, advances were made in the search for solutions to intractable problems. Stainless steel was developed, and was used not only in some aeroplane engines, but also for cutlery and medical instruments. Communications were vital. Cables were often destroyed by artillery or tanks, and the Germans had found a way of tapping into British cable communications. Pilots needed to communicate with the ground. The answer was wireless, and to help with the problem of the aircraft engine noise, helmets were designed with built-in microphones and earphones. Civil aviation was to use these and the other aeronautical advances after the war. There are quite a few pieces in the prose collection concerning aircraft and balloons, including the experiences of one young American airman. Frank chose to read some of his letters. History and technology are particular interests of mine. Having recently become involved as a reader with the LibriVox project, and discovering that LibriVox was doing a special World War I commemorative collection, I found myself being drawn towards making a contribution to that collection. I decided to prepare and read a selection of letters from the book The American Spirit by Briggs Kilburn Adams, Lieutenant of the Royal Flying Corps. Initially, my interest was from the perspective of how early aviation technology was employed during the 1918 period in the prosecution of that terrible war. However, as I read through the letters, I was so strongly taken by the humanity, bravery and idealism of this young American man, Briggs Adams, who not alone once, but twice volunteered to become involved in the work, as he called it. Despite his continuous efforts in his correspondence to reassure his family, and in particular his mother, that all was well, that he was well trained and well prepared and safe, nonetheless, being involved in the work as he saw it, was to see him being called upon on the 14th of March 1918 to make that ultimate sacrifice. May he rest in peace. Thank you, Frank. And here is Herman again to tell us about his other recordings for the collection, this time two pieces in French. I also read a few pages of a French book in French, Ma pièce de 75, that's to say, My Cannon of 75mm, written by Paul Lantier, who was a volunteer in 1914. He was wounded at a battlefront, but although he lost a hand, volunteered again in July 1915 and was killed by a shrapnel in March 1916, when his first book was edited. Reading this book, we have to regret that French literature has lost, with Paul Antier, a prominent writer. Then I found also a little book in French dedicated to the education of young children, Alphabet of la Grande Guerre, Alphabet of the Great War, by André Helle. Even if he is almost forgotten, André Helle was a precursor of the actual York literature. You can give yourself an idea about the astonishing quality of his works, illustrations, 
writings and wooden toys if you take a look to the side of Les Amis d'André Hellé. This alphabet is very well illustrated, but it gives an idea of the war that has nothing to do with the terrible reality. As an example, many people have strong opinions about African or Asian people induced by the readings of Les Aventures de Tintin. I am afraid that reading this alphabet helped young people to forge an idea about war and to conclude that it was not so terrible, so that when they had grown up, they could joyfully go to war with la fleur au fusil, the flower in the barrel. It is interesting that the LibriVox World War I project united people of countries all over the world speaking different languages, who may have been enemies. In the same spirit of Benjamin Britten, who, for the premiere of his war requiem, invited singers from Germany, Soviet Union and Great Britain, I hope we all participated to this project promoting not a world war, but a world brotherhood. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you, Herman. I think that's rather a good description of LibriVox, a world brotherhood. These collections, of course, are multilingual, and English, Dutch, French, German, Portuguese, Russian and Ukrainian are all represented. I do urge you to listen, particularly to the poems, even if you don't speak the language. The emotion in some of them leaps the language barrier. For instance, Mayakovsky was an influential Russian early futurist poet, and the passion in this poem is extraordinary. Here is part of Anastasia's reading, the poems translated as Mama and the Evening Killed by the Germans. Mama! Громче! Дым! Дым! Дым еще! Что вы мямлите, мама, мне? Видите, весь воздух вымощен громыхающим под ядрами камнем. Мама! Сейчас притащили израненный вечер. Крепился долго кургузный, шершавый. И вдруг, надломивши тучные плечи, Расплакался бедный на шее Варшавы. Звезды в платочках из синего сица визжали. While many of the poems sing the praises of heroes and mourn their deaths and honor those who care for the wounded, there were also some powerful anti-war poems written, some of which are included here. Many of us have family members who took part in the war. Here is Martin to tell us about his grandfather. Hi, my name's Martin Geeson, in, but not of, Hazelmere in Surrey. And my grandfather was a yellow belly. That's no reflection on his personal courage. It's what natives of the English county of Lincolnshire call themselves. Young men and boys in the poorest families may have joined Kitchener's expeditionary force in the fever of patriotism, but some were also looking for an adventurous escape from the hardship and tedium of rural life. For example, my grandad spent very little of his boyhood in school. 
he worked outside in the big level fields as a bird scarer with a sideline in mole trapping and so early in the great war he rushed to enlist in the lincolnshire regiment a k a the yellow bellies now some months ago i needed a dialect voice to read a poem of wilfred owen and with my grandfather in mind i tried to suggest the speech of the lincolnshire nottinghamshire border where he grew up and here it is the chances by wilfred owen her mind is how the night afore that show us five got talking we was in the know over the top to-morrow boys we're for it first wave we are first ruddy wave that's torrid ah well says jimmy and he's seen some scrapping there ain't more than five things as can happen you get knocked out else wounded bad or cushy scuppered or note except you're feeling mushy one of us got the knockout blown to chops so there was hurt like losing both his props and one to use the word of hypocrites had the misfortune to be took by fritz now me i wasn't scratched praise god almighty though next time please i'll thank him for a blighty but poor young jim he's living and he's not he reckoned he'd five chances and he's had he's wounded killed and prisoner all the lot the ruddy lot all rolled in one jim's mad well my grandfather was lucky enough to get his blighty he was invalided out of the battle of the somme and taken to one of the forces convalescent hospitals that was set up on the north wales coast now my grandmother was in those days a semi-professional ballad singer a sort of straight-laced welsh counterpart of molly bloom she toured around singing for the wounded troops including my grandad popular operatic numbers and tactfully patriotic songs about picard roses and so on and as chance would have it he fell quickly in love with her somewhere between the refrain and the chorus and soon well he swapped an existence as a mobile scarecrow among the fields and dykes of his native lincolnshire for a mostly unadventurous and still very poor married life by the seaside and all down to a blighty thanks martin we have some wonderful dialects in the british isles but i do appreciate that some of you may find them a little difficult to understand that poem has also been recorded in the poetry collection by Kara schallenberg martin raises an interesting point about the motivation of young men going off to be a soldier my own grandfather having been a gardener in southern england since the age of thirteen was one of those who enlisted early when his son my father was less than six years old for some reason never explained my grandfather enlisted in a scottish regiment 
I find it hard to imagine that he had some overriding desire to wear the kilt, but what do I know? I suspect it was more to do with getting away from my granny, but that's quite another story. What I do know is that he went to hell and back, including the Somme. Life was never the same for my father, who was ten when his father returned, physically unscathed, but mentally destroyed. His Glengarry, his uniform hat, hung on a peg in my granny's flat until her death in the 1960s, but she never spoke of him. And until the end of his long life, my dad would never speak of the First World War. That war wrecked many lives, and not only by injuries and death. Think only of Edmund Blunden, a fine poet who survived the war and went on to live until 1974. Most of his poetry and prose, of course, is still in U.S. copyright, so it can't be included in our collection. He couldn't let go of it, his daughter said. The images just used to haunt him. He went on writing about the war until he could no longer write. The very last poem he wrote was about survivor guilt. Of course, he was seen as one of the lucky ones. Many of the most well-known poets of the First World War died during the war, either killed in action or from other causes, including the Englishman Rupert Brooke, Isaac Rosenberg and Wilfred Owen, the Scot Charles Hamilton Sawley, the Welsh Edward Thomas, the American Alan Seeger, the German August Stram, and the Canadian John McCrae. You'll find poems by all of these included in the collection. In our global community, we shall not forget, though our beautiful world is still racked by war. Here is a rather special contribution from Winston, the unpronounceable K5HSJ on the forums, to remind us that it was not the war to end wars. This is Winston Tharp. I chose The Next War for this collection because I've been a fan of the poetry of Wilfred Owen for almost 50 years. While stationed at Bitburg Air Base, Germany, I first heard a soundtrack recording of The Days of Wilfred Owen. This 1964 film showcased a selection of the poet's war poems illustrated by the watercolors of Robert Andrew Park and performed by the great Welsh actor Richard Burton. For me, the time and place resonated in several ways with Owen's poetry. Bunkers of the Majno Line were close by. The Bitburg area had seen fierce fighting 22 years earlier when Patton's tanks came through on their rush across Europe. And I had just heard that my best friend in high school had been killed in Vietnam. Here's part of Owen's preface, as recorded at Bitburg by a very young Sergeant Winston Tharp in 1967, in tribute to both Wilfred Owen and Richard Burton. This is not about heroes. English poetry is not yet fit to speak of them. Nor is it about deeds or lands, nor anything about glory, honor, might, majesty, dominion, or power, except war. Above all, I am not concerned with poetry. My subject is war, and the pity of war. <laughs> 
The poetry is in the pity. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them.